The following sermon audio is from the Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about the Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Hello? Okay. Today's scripture reading will come from Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through 18. I'm not quite sure what page it is. Sorry, wrong, wrong passage. Yeah. Um, nine, fifteen through twenty-eight. Oh, nine, fifteen. Okay. Yeah. All right. Try that again. Hold on for one second. All right. Today's scripture reading will come from Hebrews chapter nine, verses nine to twenty-eight. Is that correct? Fifteen to twenty-eight. 15 to 28. All right. We got it. It's all. It's all good. Do we know what page that's on? I'm sorry. All right, here we go. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. morning everyone. If you don't have a, a Bible this morning and you want to follow along, we've got uh, blue Bibles in the very back um, that you can pick up and uh, you can keep that one for yourself. It's just uh, a paperback Bible. It's our gift to you. So feel free to get up and get that if it's helpful. Uh, before we get started, let's spend a moment in prayer. Our great God, Time never stands still. There's, there's always new struggles, new joys each week. And, um, and we want to walk through those with you. We want to invite you in 
to those things, even though you're already here. You're already in our midst. Your spirit is already walking with us, but we want to consciously process those things with you. We want to acknowledge you as the giver of all good things, and we also want to acknowledge you as the victor over all darkness. So God, we want to praise you for the success of Jen Hill's surgery. We praise you that it went according to plan, and we, we just ask, God, that this would be the end of it, that they wouldn't find any more cancer. And we thank you that throughout this process, Jen's hope has been on you. So we, we ask that you would maintain that as the theme of her life, as the theme of our lives, that our hope would be in you regardless of whatever trials may come. And Lord, we also, we, we grieve the passing of, Al, of Anne Mulconry's niece, Julia. Um, merciful God, we know that this world is not as it was meant to be, and it's not yet what it will be in the end. Um, we know that with, with infection and, and tragedy, there's, there's much pain. And so we ask, God, that you would comfort Anne through this loss, Comfort her with your word. Comfort her with your people. And we ask that you'd provide for those who Julia left behind, her, her three sons, Mason and Xander and Lincoln. Draw them and, and lead them. Cause them to find refuge in you. God, we thank you for the healthy birth of Craig and Pam's granddaughter, Skylar. And we, we ask that you would provide for all of Nate and Ariel's needs and that you would cause Skylar to hear of your character and your great deeds. We pray that she would believe, that she would walk with you all the days of her life. God, shape her into a woman who is a conduit of your grace to her family, to the church, and to the world. And God, now as we turn to your word, we ask that you would clarify your good news in our minds and in our hearts, and we ask that you would use these words to change the way we live. Your glory. Amen. So uh, we ended our text last time with the thought that the blood of Christ was necessary in order to purify our consciences and to bring us into right relationship with the living God. And this poses at least three problems, at least. First, if you've been a Christian for a long time, likely you've grown a bit numb to words like these about the blood of Jesus and atonement and all that. And and you can get to a point where you don't even really think anymore about the wonder of this concept that, that this divine person descended into our human history and was brutally killed. And that that was exactly what had to happen for our joy and for the world to be set right. This is a glorious mystery revealed and it's going to continue to change us if we will let it. So we must spend more time meditating on the blood of Christ, just as the author of Hebrews continues to do in these verses. And a second problem, which really anyone could have with this text, but I'll, I'll point out specifically um, Jewish people and Muslim people, uh, according to their worldview, there's no room for God's champion to be slaughtered. Maybe, maybe killed in a victorious battle as a martyr, but no, a prophet, that wouldn't even happen to a prophet. So they, they can't make sense of this, that we say that the Messiah died by shameful execution. In their mind, divine approval necessitates victory 
and honor. And so a need for the blood of Christ, it sounds foolish and, and frankly kind of loserish. Maybe you remember in 1 Corinthians, we talked about how to the Jewish mind, the cross of Christ is foolishness. And here in the book of Hebrews, the original audience, they were people who were under pressure to return to just merely a Jewish lifestyle. Just, just drop off this Jesus stuff, return to normal. And you can imagine their former friends maybe even taunting them like, oh yeah, your so-called Messiah, he went and got himself killed and so you have to invent some reason why that was needed. Likely story. So, the blood of Jesus needs to be further explained to that crowd that had no place for a suffering Messiah. They need to see that actually lasting salvation could not come without a higher order of sacrifice like that. And lastly, and probably most relevant for our society at large, this concept of the blood of Jesus, it just sounds gory. Like killing sacrifices, sprinkling blood on altars, it's just so primitive and barbaric. Like how could these backward ancient ways have any relevance to my life, many would say. So we need to speak further about the blood of Jesus. And starting in verse 15, we read, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Well, we've already heard in chapter 8 that Christ is the mediator or go-between in this new covenant. And the new covenant, that just, that's the official relationship between God and humanity. When it says that Christ is a mediator, it doesn't mean he's a mediator like he brings both sides together and then they, they both make concessions and then they reach a compromise in the middle. No, the, there's no compromising the holiness of God, nor would we want there to be any compromise of that. But what it means is that Christ, as mediator, he's the only agent who can actually enact this solution that God the Father himself mercifully designed. So we've seen that concept, mediator of the covenant. We saw that before. But what's new here in this verse is that Jesus as mediator, um, the, the focus is on his death as the necessary event by which God's people are redeemed in the new covenant. And it gets after that question of... Um, how are those who are called to receive the inheritance? What, by what mechanism does that happen? So God had freely set his love on a people whom he intended to rescue. And even in the times before Christ, the believers were saved through faith in God's promise to redeem and to provide an eternal inheritance. But how would that redemption, how would that inheritance take place? This verse answers, it had to happen through a death. If you remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' prayer to the Father, he said, My Father, if it, if it be possible, let this cup, his, his impending death on the cross, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then we see that he did go to the cross. It, it was not possible any other way. There was no other way than the death of Jesus. Why? To understand that, we need a word about blood and about death in the Bible generally. And the first piece is that sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. God is the giver of life. Life, we could define it as existence that flows from God. Well, what happens when, as we've all done, you say, you know what, I want to do existence my way. 
well, then you're, you're severing the connection with the God of life, and it leads to death. There, there's no way it couldn't have that effect. And this is why our first parents were warned in the garden not to eat the, the fruit of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were told they would surely die. And on that day when they did sever themselves from the God of life, they did die in many ways immediately. But also physically their bodies began their descent into death. Sin leads to death. There's simply no way around it. And the Bible corroborates this at many points. Now you might say, well, well can't God just... Forget, forgive. He's God, right? He can just say, hey, I'm, I'm going to, you've done this, but I'm going to choose to just bring you right back into the sphere of life. Let bygones be bygones. Can't he do that? You know, this is a popular notion of justice in our day that maybe there don't actually have to be consequences. One of the children's shows that I absolutely despise is Paw Patrol. Now, I'm not condemning you if your kids watch this, okay? My son still watches it from time to time. Just be sure to take a moment and point out to your kids what I'm about to point out to you, all right? The perpetual bad guy in the show is Mayor Humdinger from the neighboring town of Foggy Bottom. And he's always causing trouble through his selfish schemes, you know, in any given episode, there's, there's all this property that's stolen or somehow destroyed. But then, inevitably, it reaches a point where his sneaky plan backfires. And then, all of a sudden, all these people are accidentally trapped in life-threatening situations, including Humdinger himself. That's when the Paw Patrol pups show up and they save all these clueless humans. But here's the thing. Humdinger never gets punished. He never gets fined. He never gets imprisoned or exiled or even banned from public office. He just gets rescued. He gets maybe mildly lectured and then sent on his merry way because, I don't know, maybe we can't envision a society where our choices have negative and lasting repercussions. Well, I want to break the news to you. That's not how reality works. It's not. Actions have consequences. Breaking God's world, marring his image, that has consequences. And, um, and so when an intrinsic principle of life has been broken, somehow it has to be made right before we can go on our way. And that brings us to a discussion of blood. <clears throat> In Genesis 3, we read that after they sinned, the Lord God found Adam and his wife hiding. And he made garments of skin and clothed them. God did that for them. So there's a lesson there. The animals had to die to cover their shame. In the next chapter, when Cain kills Abel, God says to Cain, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's quite interesting. The blood is kind of personified. And the blood is bearing witness about the guilt of the murderer. Five chapters later, God tells Noah two interesting things about blood. He says, first he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So, 
Noah is to realize that blood represents life. And also the shed blood of a man requires reckoning. And we begin to see this, that, that blood is like this principle of life. And somehow it's measurable and somehow it has weight on like some, some cosmic balance sheet. Now, the prohibition on eating blood is continued throughout the Jewish ceremonial law because God wanted to teach his people about the value of blood for sacrifice. In Leviticus 17.11, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So, now, like, after walking through these passages that show, okay, blood has value, blood represents life, blood is designated for sacrifices to make atonement for sin, you may say, okay, I see there's a logic there. I see the logic. I still think it's weird. And if that's you, I just want to challenge you and say, look, this is how God has told us that the world functions. There's a justice that's inherent to creation and it, it may not be intuitive to our culture. It may not be natural for our preferences. But it doesn't mean that it's not right and good. And so I implore you to submit to God's word and, and kind of fill out your worldview from these ancient truths that your creator has mercifully revealed to us. Now from here, the logic of the passage gives us two points. So main point, Jesus' death the main idea, Jesus' death secures the eternal inheritance for his people. Why? Subpoint one, covenants with God, like wills, require death. Covenants require death. And we read, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is, it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Why are we talking about wills all of a sudden? There's something interesting happening in that the word here for, the, everywhere else in Hebrews, this word is translated covenant. But here in this verse, it's translated will because they were the same word in Greek. Kind of like our antiquated word testament. It could, it could refer either to an agreement like a covenant or it can mean like last will and testament. So to help them see why death was necessary for the covenant to be enacted, he, he kind of borrows um, from this will concept. He's like, look at a will. That's a sort, another sort of agreement that requires a death to be set in motion. He's teaching them about the nature of covenants through a play on words. You know, covenant, covenant. It would sound the same, but, it, you know, for us it's translated will, covenant. Um, kind of like, I don't know if this example helps. You're in a corporate setting, and um, you're talking to a coworker, and you're like, hey, did the board... Um, change their mind about that strategy that we're supposed to use next quarter, and then your coworker says, we'll "Pretend your coworker is standing next to a paneled wall," and he's like, "Nope, the board is as immovable as this board." So you've got like two different meanings of the same word, and one is being used to inform your understanding of the other. Right? That's what will and covenant are doing here. We're told, just like a last will and testament requires a death to take effect. In the same way, a testament of blessing from God for fallen humanity requires the death of one who is bearing sin in order for there to be redemption. 
with a will, a death is presupposed, a death must be proven, and it's the same with the covenant with God. If he's to accept sinners, then a death must be established. There must be blood. Verses 18 and 22 remind us of how that use of blood played out in the Old, Test- in the Old Testament. And it, it happened many places with the utmost seriousness, and there's a sacred ceremony to, to the handling of blood. We read that um, starting in, in verse 19, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled blood, sp- sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this is referring to Exodus 24. Moses, at the start of the first covenant, he takes animal blood and he literally just throws it out on the people, on the crowd. Now, if you had a splash of blood hit you in the face or stain your clothes, that's a a pretty vivid reminder, isn't it, of the cost of sin and of the the life or death nature of, of how you need a substitute. And and just want to clarify, it's not because blood is blood in itself is somehow pleasing to God. He's not bloodthirsty. It's it's rather it's about what the blood represents, right? It's because the life of the pure sacrifice is pleasing to him. And the blood represents that this pure life is being placed in front of the cursed life, and God mercifully allows an exchange of outcomes. Now, perhaps that quote of Moses in verse 20, when he said, uh, the blood of the covenant, um, this is the blood of the covenant. Uh, Maybe that reminds you of another place in Scripture where similar words are said. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He He was doing something parallel because he was ushering in a second covenant, a new covenant. You're meant to see that parallel. And the big takeaway from this rerun of the Old Covenant that we see in these verses, the big takeaway is verse 22. It says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So why did Jesus have to die? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's how the universe works. After all, Forgiveness without punishment, that would be to accept evil. If you want that God, if you want to live in a place that's like that. It's okay, Adolf, those, those six million Jews, just say you're sorry. It's okay, Joseph Stalin, so you made 30 million people disappear. It's okay, Mao, starve your own people in order to meet your higher goals. Those are extreme examples, but it's okay, guy who ruined the retirements of others through his embezzling. It's okay, miss serial adulterer and homewrecker. It's okay, child beater. It's okay, thieves and liars and drug dealers and controlling husbands. Just try to live a good life from now on. Go on your way like Mayor Humdinger. See, where do you draw a line? 
where do you draw a line from where, where you're free to go and where there's consequences? I mean, I think we would all say, well, you draw the line right before me, right? If, <laughs> if anyone misses the mark more than me, well, then that's when there's a price to pay. But if we're introspective at all, I think we know that's not how it works. We see that we all have harmed others. We all have harmed ourselves. We've harmed God's world. We've spat on God's provision and God's kindness. We've all committed crimes against the good. We've promoted a fake world that's severed from life in God's real world. And so without an offering of life that's in blood, there's no decisive purging of defilement. Okay, some people might say, what about this? How, how is it just for God to allow the innocent to stand in the place of the guilty? That's not normally, we don't normally call that justice. We would call that quite unfair to the innocent person, right? Normally that's true, but I think we all acknowledge storylines, whether in books or movies, We've seen these stories where a higher harmony is achieved through love and willing sacrifice, and justice is satisfied through substitution, and redemption occurs. One pastor from the 1800s put it this way. He asked, Is our sense of justice wronged when a man knowingly and willingly marries an almost bankrupt woman and makes himself legally responsible for all her debts? Are we outraged by that? Is our sense of justice outraged? No. And may not the Lord Jesus knowingly, willingly, and lovingly marry this poor bankrupt bride of humanity and with his eternal riches bear all the burden of her debt? I hope that's helpful. But the point of verses 15 to 22 is, will we learn the object lesson of the blood? Do you see the cost of your sin? You know, we tend to see our own sin as slight and excusable and understandable, kind of like, um, kind of like a, a dirty old uncle who says something inappropriate at the holiday table, and we all just kind of like nervous laugh and then, and then um, move on. But that's not how our sin is. Our sin is more, it's hideous, it's deadly, it's like an insane old man with hatred in his eyes and knives in his hands and murder on his creepy smile. Once sin has been introduced, we need to understand there is going to be blood. There is going to be murder. The only question is whether it will be yours or that of a sacrifice in your place. And so, Christian, we should not grow numb to the reality that blood was required from one of whom blood never should have been required, the innocent one. And there's an old hymn that says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. When we see this rightly, it's going to affect us. It's, sin is going to lose its power, actually, because the very thought of the cost to Jesus of our sin will start to make us sick. And also, our sense of thankfulness to God will be so overwhelming that we will just want to live for him and not for ourselves. 
So Jesus' death secures our inheritance because death was needed to initiate a new covenant. Okay, we see that. But why did it have to be Jesus' blood in particular? And this is what verses 23 and following address. So the main thought in that second section is that, you know, if you hope for better results than the old covenant, you're going to have to have a better sacrifice. A better sacrifice. If you want the atonement to not just provide purity for this temporal realm so that you can go to temple or be inside the camp, but you actually want the cleansing to provide purity in the conscience and, and right standing before God so that you can gain entrance into his presence. Well, you're going to need a sacrifice that's not merely mortal in nature. I say not merely because verses 15 to 22 are still true that we need, there needs to be blood. So the sacrifice has to be mortal. But the needs for where the sacrifice will take effect, it's not just a physical temple, but among the heavenly things themselves. So the sacrifice can't be merely mortal. It has to carry a divine effectiveness. Now, as we talk about this, you might get the sense that, that even the inspired author of Hebrews is using kind of vague terms, like heavenly things. The heavenly things need to be purified. Like, is there a temple structure in heaven with actual vessels that had to be purified like, like they are in verse 21? Or is, is it just kind of the concepts of temple that are important what, what exactly are the heavenly things? And the language of verse 23 seems to suggest that just like the priests of old had to purify the temple, so also Christ's blood goes ahead of us and it prepares the heavenly sanctuary and, and keeps it from becoming defiled when the, the offering of sinners is brought into it. And it, it paved the way for the guilt offering that Jesus then brought on our behalf so that it would be effective. So it's, it's kind of technical, but the blood of Christ accomplishes all of this, all that needed to happen in the heavenly realm. Jesus accomplished it. Again, just as with the principle of blood, we don't know maybe as much as we might like to know about the how and the why of how the heavenly realm works and the holiness of God. Why does it have to operate in this way? But we know enough to take God at his word, don't we? These are things into which angels long to look. God doesn't owe it to us to explain to our finite minds the, the detailed scaffolding of, of the moral structure of existence. But even what he's graciously revealed for our salvation, C.S. Lewis would call it the deeper magic in his children's book, even what he's revealed is more than what we can digest in a lifetime, right? So let's look at it and let's believe and when we do look at this second part of our passage, we see two ways in which Christ, the better sacrifice, secures our inheritance. How is he a better sacrifice? First, location. We talked about that already. He went where no man could go. He went into the very presence of God. Second, he's a better sacrifice because of the finality of what only he could accomplish. And here we're looking at verses 25 and 26. It says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then, Jesus would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And we spoke last week of how under the Jewish sacrificial system, there's always more offerings, always more sacrifices that can be made. 
Well, here it's emphasized, as it is repeatedly throughout Hebrews, that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf is once for all in its nature. So if we're going to enjoy a permanent peace with God, we need a provision like this that is permanent. It's going to take care of things. We don't want our sin to just be covered for a season. We need it to be put away, period. And thankfully, that's exactly what Jesus, our sacrifice, accomplished. He put away sin. He deleted the charges against us. And in doing so, he also canceled its power over us. And it's often said that the only sin that we can kill is forgiven sin. Forgiven sin. In other words, if you lose sight of that forgiveness, and if you're paralyzed by shame and guilt constantly, you keep going through these cycles of shame and guilt, you're actually more likely to keep repeating those same sins, even though you feel so bad about them. Why? Because... It comes down to how you're viewing God. You're viewing God as frowning, as constantly disappointed in you, and acting as if it's all up to you to change. But that's not how the power of sin is put away. You know, I'm still figuring out this fatherhood thing, but one thing I've noticed is that if I'm just, you know, demands, 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 um, disappointment, my kids are actually less likely to, to respond in obedience to that. But if they know my smile and if they know that I'm going to provide them with everything they need in order to obey, then that's a different story. So, similarly, the one who is able to grow out of sin patterns is the one who's thinking more about God's smile on them because of Jesus' victory than they are thinking about his or her own failures. Yes, we should deal honestly with our sin. Yes, we should walk in repentance, but that's not the same as self-punishment. And when we understand what the blood of Jesus has accomplished, we don't need to keep living these sin nightmares over and over again. And it's not to say that there won't be patterns of struggle, but there will be growth, however slow. It comes not by obsessing over our sin, as grievous as it is, but by rejoicing every day in the good news of Jesus' blood that has forever atoned for our former sins and our future sins. So, is Christianity bloody? You bet it is. Because reality is bloody. But would you rather have that cutting off of life? Would you rather have it be in the past? Or would you rather have it be waiting for you in your future? This once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus we read here that it was the trigger for the end of the ages. That's how the time we live in is described, the end of the ages. It's a time in which the question is no longer, how can I deal with evil? The evil out there, the evil within here. That's not the question anymore. It's been revealed. It's dealt with through the new covenant in Jesus' blood. The remaining question for today is will you embrace that new covenant path of salvation that the living God has firmly established for humanity? So verses 27 to 28 move us on to that question. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We have sinned and we must die. 
There's no way around that. The question is, whose death? Whose death are you going to die? That sounds strange, but let me unpack that. You can die your own death, bearing your own sin, as most people do. And then there's no second chances. There's no do-overs. There's no grading by a curve. Your body dies once, then comes judgment, leading to forever soul death. Or you can be found to have died 2,000 years ago, to have died with Christ as he bore your sin. And if you died with Christ, you've been joined to him as your covenant head by faith. Well, then there's no redemption price left to be paid. You will be accepted at the judgment, and you will share in his inheritance of unending life. And you can be confident in that. There's a great quote from the reformer Martin Luther. He says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's the confidence we can have. But such a confidence will only come if you truly are in Christ by faith. His provision for sin happened once for all time. And it it leaves us in this, this moment before the end of all things, awaiting the reckoning to come. The one reckoning that faces us. How will you respond today to such a great salvation? Now is the time of urgent decision. The time between the two appearances of Jesus. The first time, he appeared to God on behalf of his people. But when he comes back, he will appear to his people to bring them to God. Now, how do you know if you died with him? How do you know if that's true of you, if, if he was your substitute? How do you know if that's the case or if there will be a reckoning of your own soul's blood, so to speak? Well, certainly we have our baptisms that remind us of that substitution. So um, when we're baptized, the imagery there is that we were, were dead and buried with Christ, and then we were raised with him to newness of life. That's what we declare when we're baptized. But how do we know that that's our inward reality, that we're portraying truth through that? Verse 28 gives us a great litmus test. It's not the only litmus test, but it is a great one. It says that he's going to return to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? What would it look like to eagerly wait for him? Why would we eagerly wait for him? Well, because we love him. You love Jesus. We would eagerly wait for him because we love him, because we trust him, because we truly believe that being with him is a greater good than remaining indefinitely in this sad and shadowy life. See, your excitement for his return is a great measure of the health of your faith. And and, and that sort of anticipation, it's not an escapist mindset, okay? It's not like, like, yeah, get me the hell out of here, whatever this is. You know, that's, that's not love for Christ. No, 
The Apostle Paul, near to the end of his life, he wrote to Timothy and he said, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, there are a number of other New Testament passages that say exactly the same thing, that we should be longing for his return. We should be awaiting him. Do you believe that? Can you live that out? Do you believe that your greatest good will be revealed at the return of Jesus? You know, when I was younger, I used to feel guilty about this. If someone asked me, like, you know, what if Jesus came back today? Then I I would... I'm, I'm be a little sad and think like but there's so much I still wanted to do right I want to have adventures and accomplish things and get married and yada yada and if if that's you today where you're like yeah, I want to be excited I just I don't know I'm not um, I don't think you should beat yourself up about it but I would challenge you to learn more and more about what the Bible says about the unparalleled joy that is in God's presence and also the nature of the resurrection life that awaits us because I promise, if Jesus came back today, if you're his, whether age 5 or 105, you would have absolutely no cause for disappointment. His appearing at that time, the text says, is going to be to save those who are waiting for him. Now, wait a minute. Save? I thought I was saved. Don't we use that language? Yeah. If you're in Christ by faith, you, you can say you're saved. But we've seen this before, and we're going to see it all, all across our Bibles, that salvation, our salvation, is past, present, and future in nature. So we were saved at the moment of our new birth, as the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to place our faith in the finished work of Christ alone. We were saved. We are being saved as the Spirit progressively sanctifies us and further frees us from sin's grip and prepares us and keeps us for life with God. We are being saved. And we will be saved. On that day when he rolls up the gray rain curtain of this world and the light of truth and justice emanates from his throne forever. We'll be done with sin and suffering. We will be saved on that day. Well, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, and, and you know maybe it feels like we've unloaded more drawers than we've tidied up in the end, and that's okay. But as we go, just know that the death of Jesus was prefigured in these ancient rituals and symbols. For thousands of years in history, it was put there to lead you to Jesus. Jesus' blood is utterly necessary to redeem you. Don't be offended by the blood of Jesus. Instead, thank him and worship God the Father who designed such a great salvation. And also ask the Holy Spirit to sharpen the senses of your faith so that you long for Christ's return as you ought to, so that you'll have no fear of judgment, but only an eager expectation of that secure, eternal inheritance that he's promised. Pray to that end. God, these words are a lot to chew on. And yet we thank you for all you've revealed. These categories of atonement, they're so foreign to us, uh, to, to natural man. We don't, we don't think in these ways. We don't necessarily perceive the way you have described the world to be. So we thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens our eyes 
to see this reality. We praise you, Jesus, that you entered into our reality. You took on flesh. You became the high priest, the mediator, and the sacrifice that we needed for a new covenant with God. Lord, make us more aware of that great cost. And I pray that we would, it would humble us. It would empower us to, to meditate on the gospel. As we, as we do that, it would empower us for living, that we would choose the good and reject the evil that's held us for so long. Help us to celebrate your gospel rightly, even now, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.